Want a fresh take on what's going on with the Saints, LSU, the betting world, and the NFL? Then you've picked the right place. Jim Derry has plenty of datitude, and he's ready to tell you the way it is. Well, the way he thinks it is. Where you at, New Orleans? And hello to all my friends across the country who just can't help saying over and over again, Roll Tide! And then chuckle just a little bit. Right? I am Jim Derry, sports betting writer at the Times-Picayune, the advocate and bet.nola.com. And oh, my goodness, what a game especially if you were rooting for Alabama to lose. Well, it was an interesting one for sure. And we're not going to spend, I am going to say this, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on football today because we have a super special guest uh, coming up in about 10 minutes. Uh, The legendary Dale Brown, who coached LSU men's basketball for a quarter of a century from the early 1970s until the late 1990s. And it's hard to believe that he's now been retired for a quarter century. So he's been associated with LSU basketball for 50 years. And even though he's not the coach any longer and hasn't been for some time, when you think of LSU basketball, I don't care what anyone says. You can. Some people will say Shaq. Some people will say Some of the teams they had in the 80s, some people will say Pete Maravich. All great answers. But to me, when I think LSU basketball, I think Dale Brown. And I was just so honored that he agreed to come on the show. And not only agreed to come on the show, but um, spent well over an hour with us. I was thinking about cutting it up into two parts. But, you know, I think it's best to just let it run in its entirety. So... If you want to skip around, if you want to listen to some of it now and pause it and listen to some of it later, it, all of it is worth listening to. I know I'm biased, but um, he was Coach Brown was great on talking about uh, not just the old days, but um, the NCAA, John Wooden, Shaq, uh, his teams of the 80s, the Final Four teams, Anthony Wilson, um, this current team, the NCA in its form today and back then. John, you know, he talked about how much John Wooden made in his final season, how much he made in his first season, and how everything's different today. And um, his ideas for where basketball is today compared to where it was back in the day. And it's just, it's very insightful and it's very candid and it's worth listening to. I think the final tally was 78 minutes and, um, we could have gone longer, to be honest. If we would have gone longer, I would have had to cut it up into two parts. But I decided to run it all today, and so that's coming up shortly. Um, looking forward to that. You will too, I think. But I do want to talk about the national championship game. Um, what can you say? And Alabama fans can make excuses all they want about the injuries that they had. But the fact is that Georgia was the better team. And I thought was... After the first, I don't know, first quarter, you know, a friend asked me, a friend texted me during, during the first quarter, and he said, um, I hope you hedged on Alabama because this team's going to get blown out. And I said, as soon as Georgia gets settled down, 
I thought they would be okay. I just didn't know. And they were. I mean, even though it was 9-6 to six at halftime, and Kirby Smart will tell you that um, he did tell you that they did so many things wrong in the first half and the fact that it was a three-point game. I think he went into that locker room and said, it's amazing that – I mean, he didn't tell his team it's amazing, but you know in his head, it's amazing we're still in this game. So maybe they didn't settle down until the third quarter. But – the most amazing thing about that game on Monday night, to me, was Stetson Bennett had every opportunity to collapse again. But he was a winner. Man, was he a winner. I mean, he, he has the play where, I don't know, it, I guess it was a fumble. And then in typical Bama fashion, Look, as good as Alabama is, and there's no question that they're a dynasty when it comes to college football, maybe the greatest college football dynasty of all time. It certainly could be argued. But you don't become a dynasty like that without getting a little lucky. And that play where it was ruled a fumble, and I've seen that called a forward pass before. I'm not saying it, it should have been called a forward pass because I guess in the grand scheme of things it was a it was a it was a fumble. Um a cert, it certainly wasn't if they would have ruled it a pass, it certainly was not intentional grounding, but that's another story. Overall the officials did a really good job and they let him play. But um Alabama gets super lucky on that play to get that fumble. And then to score a touchdown if you're a Georgia fan, you're saying, I've seen this movie before, and you can't help but think this game's over. But it wasn't, because Stetson Bennett wouldn't let it be over. The former walk-on, the kid who's been a part of that program for five years, and it's only apropos that we have Dale Brown on today, because a kid that had no business, really, not only not being the, the... Georgia quarterback. But a kid who certainly had no business in the national championship game against the defending champion, against the team that cleaned his clock just 37 days prior in the SEC championship game, found a way to get it together on the grandest stage with any sports interested person's eye watching the game, millions and millions of people watching him, he overcame. That's what Dale Brown's teams were about, overcoming. And you could say whatever you want if you're old enough to remember watching those basketball teams. But people would say things about Dale Brown and uh, about his coaching abilities and that he was a great recruiter and not the greatest coach, malarkey. I thought Dale Brown was a phenomenal mind, and I'm not just saying that because he's on the show today. I grew up loving Dale Brown. loving uh, He got me into college basketball, his teams. The 1986 team, Anthony Wilson picking up the ball off the floor and divine intervention, throwing it up at the buzzer. Then beating Georgia Tech, a three-seed and a two-seed in the PMAC. wasn't called the PMAC then. It was just the Assembly Center. 
then beating Kentucky, the top seed. So people were talking, well, she only won because they were playing it on their home court. Well, then they went and beat Kentucky in the Elite Eight. Then they struggled and had a lead against Louisville in the Final Four, and but it doesn't diminish what they were able to accomplish that year. And just the players that he was able to coach. And some of the names... You know, you could care, compare Stetson Bennett to, in a way, Ricky Blanton. Ricky Blanton didn't belong on the court with some of the guys that he played up against in, throughout his career, but he just did it. I mean, you think of some of the players that, that ended up being outstanding players at LSU. The late Don Redden, who played with Ricky Blanton. The aforementioned Anthony Wilson. He talks about how Anthony Wilson came in as a freshman and was on the bench. Could have quit. But he ended up leading the team in scoring his senior year. How about the freak defense? We talk about that. All that's coming up. But I, did, uh, I didn't want to go without mentioning the uh, Monday night's national championship game because it was phenomenal. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not... Oh, maybe I'll toot my own horn a little bit. I mean, I said in October that no one was going to beat this Georgia team when it mattered. You could argue that the SEC championship game mattered, but I told you that they weren't going to show Alabama everything that they had in its arsenal because they knew there was a good chance they'd play them again. And they did. And they were the better team. And they won. So hats off to the Georgia Bulldogs on this Wednesday morning. And, um, you know, just got to give them a lot of love, especially, especially because, uh, you know, got that future in in October. Thanks to the help from Zach Ewing, we, uh, we did very well in our bowl pool. I've been in this thing for 10 years, highest I've ever finished. It was a good, it was a good, good Monday night for sure. Let's get to the man of the hour. I mean, it, I've been lucky enough, and I never mentioned this is episode 45. See, I was so excited. I skipped over that part. Episode number 45 for a Wednesday, January the 12th, 2022. Of the 45 episodes, it may or may not be the best one we've done when it's all said and done. Maybe not the best interview. Maybe it is. But it's my favorite so far. With no offense to any of my former guests and former guests who hopefully will be future guests because everyone we've had on this show so far is more than welcome to come back. We've been very lucky in the early stages of this podcast to have some really fantastic guests. And that goes all the way back to episode one with Stan Verrett and uh, go back and listen to it. It aired in September. Wherever you're listening now, you can find it easily. But Dale Brown um, you know, overcame a lot. How did a guy from Minot, North Dakota end up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? That's how we start the show, I believe. Um, it, it's an interesting story. And then when he got here, he could have easily left, but no, he didn't want to leave, he stayed. 
Let's hear his story. LSU coach Dale Brown. Very honored to welcome into the Data 2 podcast former LSU coach and legend Dale Brown. And, uh, Coach, I'm so happy that you agreed to join the, the podcast. And, and um, how are you doing? I have no complaints except the political arena in this country. Yeah, well, that's a whole other story. That uh, I think that's, sure is. that's another podcast, as a matter of fact. Um, Coach, I want to get into uh, some some different things here, but the first thing I want to ask, it's, it's something I've always wanted to know, and I don't know that I've ever got the answer to, is how did a, how did a guy from Minot, North Dakota, end up in Louisiana? It's rather a bizarre story. We were, both my wife and I were teachers in North Dakota, and we were literally starving. We didn't have teachers' retirement. Uh, we could barely make uh, our monthly payments. And we, did, we, we were the kind of people, we get a bill, we wanted to pay it that day, and some days we'd have to push it off for two weeks. We had a two-year-old daughter. And one night at dinner, we were talking about, we, we love North Dakota. Both of us were born there, so it's our, it's our native home, but, but we just couldn't make a living. So my wife said, you know, a lot of, a lot of North Dakotans go to California and get good jobs. We should do that. We didn't know a soul in California. We, we had one car. We made a little bed for our baby girl, two years old in the back seat. We took off for Southern California. No context, never been to California. Started in Southern California and went from one school district to another school district. Now the catch was we only had one car and we both had to teach. So we had to teach in the same town. Well, we couldn't get a job in the same town for the exception of Berkeley, which was a zoo at the time. It was the dawn of Mario Savio and the free speech movement. Right. And uh, we got a job in Berkeley. I, I taught at a junior high school and coached, and she taught at the Berkeley High School. Well, then we found out there was an opening at Palm Springs. I became the head coach there. But I didn't like what I was doing because teaching like the superintendent would come up and say, hey, the, uh, the chemistry teacher is pregnant. She can't teach. You have to teach chemistry the, the, the week before school start. <laughs> and I would say, I don't even know how to light a Bunsen burner. <laughs> well, that's okay. Just teach it. So I didn't like the fact we were just I was staying ahead of the, the class by reading the chapter ahead of them. And so I wrote letters to 100 coaches telling him I just wanted to be a coach. I'd come as a graduate assistant, but come as a part-time. Only two people ever answered me, John Bennington at Michigan State, Waddell Anderson at Utah State. And I wound up being the assistant at Utah State and um, then wound up at Washington State. Well, then they fired the Washington State coach and offered it to me. So I got home that night and my wife said, there's a call from a guy by the name of Carl Maddox. He says he's the athletic director at Utah State. So I called him right away, and he said he'd like me to come for an interview. They've just fired their head coach. So I came for the interview, and lo and behold, the rest is history. The no-name guy from North Dakota, they asked me for references, and I would say, well, who, who can I get him from? The janitor? I don't have any references. <laughs> I don't know anybody or anybody. 
So thank God for Carl Maddox and, and also Joe Dean, who was with Converse Rubber Company, gave my name to Carl Maddox. And that was the 25 years later I was t- coaching at LSU. The string music, Joe Dean. <laughs> I mean, string music. That He was probably the most... Uh, popular basketball figure in the business. Everybody knew him. He was vice president of Converse Rubber Company. And uh, I'd seen him at the Final Fours, and we, we developed a relationship. So that's how he gave my name to Mr. Maddox. Coach, how did you, after, you know, you stayed at LSU for a quarter of a century, and then you decided to stay in Baton Rouge. What, what was it about Louisiana? I mean, obviously, a guy that didn't know anything about southern ways or anything like that you obviously took to it and decided to stay here you loved it so much I think I could sum it up this way Jim I've been in 90 countries in the world all 50 states there's nowhere I've ever been now is there there a more beautiful spot yeah New Zealand Switzerland the mountains in Montana but there's no friendlier or nicer people that I've seen in the world than there is in Louisiana. That doesn't mean we're free of problems, but we just loved the people. And then our daughter grew up here and graduated from LSU, and so the people was number one. Uh, just good people. Uh, you don't see that. My daughter uh, was back visiting. They've, they've been all over the country in, in their job in New York life, and she said they were walking around the lake one day, and it was the funniest thing. She said, everybody they walk by, hi, how are you today? She said, they don't do that in California. They don't do that in Denver. She said, it was just so nice to see friendly people. Coach Dale Brown here on the Data 2 Podcast. Coach, um, I want to talk, before I get into some of the memories, because I I mean, like I I told you before we got on the air, obviously I grew up with LSU basketball and LSU football, and I was a Tiger from, I think, the day I was born. It was just instilled purple and gold in me, but... Coach, talk about your retirement and, you know, being here for, for that long and thinking back to 97 and when you decided to, that that was enough, how tough was that for you back then? Because to, to, you were still, you know, you were, you were in your 60s. You're, I mean, coaches coach well in their 70s, some of them. How hard was that to, to retire and do you ever regret deciding to hang it up then? Not one bit. I went one day... I can't remember what year it was, but we live maybe five miles from the LSU campus down Highland Road in Baton Rouge, if you're familiar with it. Yeah. And I was driving to work one day, and it was a beautiful day, and I thought, oh, man, I'm just so excited to do what I'm doing. I'd get to that office early. I'd be the last one to leave. I'd forget, forget to eat lunch. I was just involved and engrossed in what I was doing. And I remember one day, one beautiful spring day, basketball's over now, driving to the office and I said, you know, when the time comes and I'm driving down this road and I just think it's, I don't want to go to the office, I'm going to turn around, go home and retire. Well, a few years later, things started to change. Uh, You used to go to schools and you'd visit the principal, the high school coach, maybe the minister, the priest, the rabbi, whoever religious affiliation they had to talk about the kid and their parents if they had two parents well now all of a sudden there was uncles appearing upon the way Mm -hmm. and not in any way 
to indict AAU coaches because there are some wonderful, wonderful AAU coaches. But there's also parasites that get involved with these kids right. and want to get paid to have the kid to go to places. And this was the game was changing. I saw it changing. Plus, the stupidity of the NCAA. These kids, most of them, come like home from me. Usually a single parent, poverty-stricken majority of them. Right. And the NCAA rules, they were cutting the kids saying a full scholarship. But that, 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 that was invalid. So I was driving one day, and all of a sudden it hit me. I don't want to go to the office. So I turned around, I came home, didn't have a cell phone at the time. Came home and I called Joe Dean. He was at home and I said, I'm gonna come by and see you. So I went to Joe Dean's house, who was the athletic director at the, t- at the time, and I said, that's it. I, I, I don't want to coach anymore. I said, it's no longer the fun. The game is changing. It's turned into a money business. I said, I just don't like what's happening. I'm gonna retire. No, don't do that. He said, you got two years left in your contract. He said, stick it out with me and we'll both retire in two years. And I said, nope. I said, I'm done with it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into another profession. I'll be a motivational speaker. I'll, I'll do a charity thing, but I don't wanna do it. And then he, so Joe Dean said, well, do this. He said, keep your office at LSU. And then he said, I'll keep you on payroll and you can do public relations. No, I said, it's time for me to quit. I don't regret it one bit. In fact, I wish I would have even done it sooner because I thought I could change the system, but the system was begrudgingly fighting everything that I was doing at the time. And now, of the 43 suggestions that I wrote, rules that should be changed, which at that time I'm sure they thought I was a maverick, 35 of them now have changed. But the only thing that I can think the NC did well was they legislated against human dignity and they practiced monumental hypocrisy. And I just had enough of it. I had enough of the, uh, the wheelers and dealers now that were kind of selling kids. It, my heart wasn't in it, so I thought it's time to quit. Speaking of the NCAA. I haven't regretted it in a minute, by the way. Well, Coach, why do you think that it seems like, I don't want to say the rules are different for different people, but... Why do you think that they, it's already even, and ask in a certain way, but it seems like they don't enforce some of the rules that they have, let's put it that way. Why do you think that is? I think there's some chosen lambs. I think there's some people that wear the black hats and some people that wear the white hats, and, and some, some universities have more prestige or something, and it seems like... Uh, they're protected, or some big name person can be protected more than others. I, I, I think there's a selective people who they're going to go after. And uh, I'm sure I was number one because I was so anti-NCA that they would have loved to prove it for me to be an Elmer Gantry or something. So they had a, a, a totally fake investigation, yep. um, which was a total... Total, totally invalid, and the kid that they were manipulating, they wanted to give, told him that they could keep his eligibility and he wouldn't lose his eligibility, and if you didn't have some, if you give us some dirt on Dale Brown, uh, he, you, you won't hurt your pro career, and literally uh, intimidated him and forced a teenager into lying. Now, months later, he wrote a letter to the editor and came to see me and apologized and said, it was them. They manipulated him. They encouraged him to lie. 
And it's all on tape, by the way. You're talking about Lester Earl. Did, did have you? Yes, I am. Do, do you do you talk to him at all now? Oh yes, yeah. Um, you know, I've forgiven him. He was he was a teenager and he was a manip- he, he, he did wrong, but also he apologized and uh, he was very sincere about it. Well, I do want to talk about some of the players that you had, and, and obviously, <clears throat> you're known for. Uh, by a lot of people who aren't as old as me as having coached Shaquille O'Neal and Chris Jackson and, and all those things. But a lot of people don't remember the Howard High C. Carters and the Rudy Macklins and the Derek Taylors and the Don Reddens of the world and Ricky Blanton. I mean, just some well, of the... You get them all. Ethan Martin? You can go on forever, really, and Nikita Wilson. Yeah. I mean, Coach, just what, what was it like? I mean, it, those kids you had, I mean, you, you could see that you, the relationship you had with those kids were, and the, none of them are kids now, but the ki- the relationship you had with them was genuine, and you guys all loved each other. I mean, and that's, you talk about being a master motivator, which is obviously one of the, the things that you were best at, but it was because of a natural bond you had and a real bond you had with these guys. Uh, Jim, I think that's, no secret. I think I think it's the truth, and it all started. That um, this is not a sob story at all. I'm not playing the harp here. But two days before I was born, my biological father abandoned my mother and I. She came off a farm, eighth grade education, couldn't get a job, had to go on welfare, become clean people's homes, uh, babysit for fifty cents an hour, and I realized that if I was to get an education. It would have to be through scholarship because none of my family had ever been to college. And I, I, I saw what sports did for me. It gave me a good self-image of myself. It taught me discipline. It taught me teamwork. And I wanted to do the same. I wanted, when I came here, my friends told me, you're making a major mistake, Dale. That's a football country. You're never going to win there. They had some fleeting moments of greatness with the great Bob Pettit and Pete Maravich, but they've had 14 out of 18 losing seasons. I refuse to accept that because I still, maybe it's old-fashioned, but I still believe that hard work does pay off. And I believe if you recruit the right kids and get them to understand the system, and I think you can also let them see vividly, and I saw this, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so I think the fact that um, I did love kids, and, and this, uh, this measurement I use, it may sound a little corny, and I hope it doesn't, but I'd see a kid play, and I'd always wonder, you know, he's a great player, but what I want him babysitting my daughter, and I'm not certainly naive enough to think you do. I was looking for a canonized saint because if that was the case, right. I would have never gotten a job. Right. But there were just some kids I didn't like. They seemed selfish. They'd argue with their coaches. They'd argue with their teammates. They had bad attitudes. And we'd pass them by. And I would look at I would look at the kid. And again, this sounds almost drippy, but I'd say, "Do I want that guy babysitting our daughter?" So I was really blessed with some wonderful guys. I had 160 of them. Those that stayed for four years, 85% have a college degree. Wow. And of that group, there's a dozen millionaires. Wow. 
um, that have made it well in life. And so I loved kids. I loved what I was doing. And fortunately, we had talented, good players. And I think something else, they heard this a thousand times. The best potential of me is we. And even though we were laughed at early, the first, first editorial I saw in the paper after an interview I had was one sports writer said, Dale Brown has a Pollyanna attitude. This was 1972. If they win two games this year, it'll be a greater miracle than Lazarus rising from the dead. Well, we started out beating Memphis State, who was second in the country, played UCLA for the national championship. And the reason the X's and O's are secondary compared to the fact um, John Wooden always used to tell me, he said, uh, I'm not being modest, Dale, or I'm not being humble when I say this, but I was just maybe average about the X's and O's, but what I was good at was being able to judge character and bringing the best out of young men and teaching them that this is a team and they must put the team above themselves. So it was an exciting time, it was a fun time. Uh, I had numerous opportunities. I had a job offered to me as AD and head basketball coach at a division one school with six times the salary. I had two NBA jobs and I had three college jobs. I had no, I had no desire. I didn't have an agent, I didn't tell the media, I didn't manipulate LSU into a bigger salary because my salary was ridiculous. And when you talk about the salaries, how they've gotten out of whack. Yes. Let me give you an example, Jim. John Wooden, greatest coach that ever lived by far. 10 national championships, 27 years at UCLA. When he retired, his salary was $32,500. That's insane. And now we're into bidding wars. That's we're insane. giving coaches millions and millions of dollars and there's university professors that barely can make a living on their putrid salaries. That's right. Uh, elementary teachers, kindergarten teachers, high school teachers that help bring our children up, their pay is ludicrous. So we've distorted the system. Up. Coach, can I ask you how much, how much you made in 1972? I can tell you what I made exactly. I made $20,000. And then the possibility of $3,000, I think, with a radio or a radio show or something. So my, my salary was, uh, um, Tiger Rag wrote an article the other day. It was, I thought at first it was a mistake. It was talking about how, how coaches' salaries have gotten just totally out of whack. Joe Dean, the former athletic director, told me one time, Dale, I'm telling you, he says this thing's going to devour itself. If they don't start putting a cap on it, he said money's going to devour it and it's all going to come crumbling down. Well, the new football coach it had in there, who I've not met. Um, Brian Kelly. Right. It said that in one day he makes more money than I made in my first seven years at LSU. Wow. <laughs> That's insane. I mean, it, I guess it's good for the coaches. I mean, if you were coaching today, I mean, that would be... Uh, one of the pluses, but I think it also takes away for it also entices um, I guess bucking the system, I guess, is the nice well, there's no point. loyalty anymore. There's no loyalty. Right. If a coach gets a job and his team goes to a bowl game and he can go to the 
NFL or NBA, I mean, and or get a bad college, he'll leave. Forget, let, 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 forget about going to the Final Four. Forget about going to a bowl game. I just think it's wrong, you know. And, and the kids eventually see that, and that's why um, selfishness is going to take over this thing, and it's going it's to devour itself. It's, it's pretty well now close to being out of control. Back when you... And, Coach, when you were sorry. I'm sorry when you when you were coaching though, there obviously there were big names in the in, in the business, but it's it seems to me now that they they talk about you know they try to put these coaches on a pedestal and there's yeah. there's so much focus and you can watch ten different games in any given night now. I mean when you know when I was growing up, it was hard if I didn't go to if you didn't go to a game, it was hard to watch LSU unless it was mm-hmm. on a Saturday afternoon or something. I didn't get to see every LSU basketball game back then. I mean, the the culture has changed so much just since you've left. No question. And you know, you know, Jim. They, the sad thing about it is, I don't deny anybody making a fair salary, but how it's been so distorted. I had a friend that was a scientist at LSU. Not maybe he's more of an acquaintance, I guess, than a friend, but he was world renowned. And he got an offer, I, I think it was from Vanderbilt, maybe. And it was more than he was making at LSU, and, and, and it was pittance, what he was making. And uh, he asked LSU for like a $7,000 raise or $10,000 raise, and well, they didn't have the money to do it, but you can pay, pay coaches. My wife was a teacher at LSU for years, and I think her highest salary in all that time was $16,000. So it's just, I don't know how it got distorted. It's really, it's really upsetting to me because it's such a wonderful event if it's, if it's held right. And now people have to pay enormous prices yeah, to buy tickets. They do. I mean, the tickets, tickets are going up and up and up and up. Yeah. I, I've seen older people that haven't been in tears, but you could tell they were really, you know, grieving by it. Coach, I had to give up my tickets. I just couldn't. I, I, well, you know, I'm on retirement now, and my husband died, and I had to give up my tickets because they're being raised so high. So, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense when a coach makes way more money than the president of a university yeah. or the athletic director. That's insane. It really. It, so it's insane. And sports can do so much, and I'm I'm so grateful. I'm I'm so grateful to the people of Louisiana. That toler- tolerated me for 25 years, and a wife who tolerated me for 62 years, and, and we love Louisiana, and I and I, I love LSU and Baton Rouge, but I don't like what's happened. It, it's just totally, totally distorted now. Well, I'm with you, and as one who is coached, I mean coached, uh, one who has covered high school sports for much of my career, probably more than two thirds of my career. Um, you know, it, people forget sometimes that it's about the kids. And college uh, college kids, they're still kids. I mean, it, it, you, the kids you coached, just because they were 20 or 21 years old, I mean, we know as, you know as well as I do, men don't, uh, they're still kids until they're like 25 or 27 in my mind. So, But it's about kids, and sometimes we forget that. Well, you know, there's a lot of kids that came to school <clears throat> with old battered tennis shoes. They didn't have dress shoes. And I remember a time, I'm still upset with myself. We were going on a road trip 
it was my early years, and I told him, told the new guys, you know, now, don't dress sloppy. Don't don't come like you're going to a picnic, you know. Dress neatly. You know, obviously, I didn't have a suit when I was growing up, so I couldn't say wear a suit, but, you know, dress, dress nicely. We're, we're, at, we're at the airport, and one of the kids had an old beat-up, tattered pair of tennis shoes. So I told Johnny Jones, I was talking to a media guy, go over and tell him, don't ever show up like that again after I told him to dress neatly. So media left, Johnny came by, and as you talked to him, and he said, yeah, he said, Coach, he said, he told me that's the only pair of shoes he's got. I felt so terrible. Yeah. I thought, oh, I went over and I apologized to the kid. I said, I'm really sorry. I said, I'm so sorry I, I did that. I said, I understand. I said, I used to crawl around in theaters as a little kid and get popcorn boxes and put them in the bottom of my sh- shoes I wore to school because they had holes in them. And I didn't want to get my socks wet. So I said, I really apologize. Now, do you know the NCA would not allow me to get him a pair of... That's just, that's silly. Street shoes? It's silly. Now I broke the rule. I got him a pair Good of street for you. shoes. Good for you. You should have. And I'll give you another example why I despise the NCA. There's two, two major things. One was we had a player on our team, transferred from St. Louis University by the name of Mark Elkhorn. His dad was an outstanding player at St. Louis. He was a good player, but he transferred to LSU. We're on a road trip. We're in an Alaskan shootout. His name is Mark Elkhorn. And I went in the room, and he was sweating, and he was jauntous looking. And I said, are you okay, Mark? I got this pain in my side. And I said, well, you, then you, we got to get you home as soon as possible and get checked. You're not playing in the tournament. No, I can play. No, you're not going to play. So he came. He, he could not play. We got him home. He was loaded with testicular cancer. Oh, my God. So his parents had to come take him home to St. Louis, took him to MD Anderson. Now, he was he was near death. When I say near death, I he was very, very ill, and they wondered if he was going to make it. Well, the mother called me, and she told me they're having a fundraiser to, to, to raise money to take him back to MD Anderson. And she said... We know Mark doesn't have long to live, and we asked him, what would you like to do? What's, what's, what's a final wish, something we can do for you? He said, Mama, I want to see the, my three best friends on the team. So she said, Coach, is there any way you could bring him to this banquet? I said, no question, they'll be there. Well, now, these kids don't have money to go there. Right. So I called the NCAA office to alert them that this was a serious matter, this child might die, and it's a fundraiser for him. Could they, could I pay their, could LSU could pay their way? Could we? Absolutely not. You turn to page 150, it's called entertainment off campus. You can't take your, hold on. Entertainment. You didn't understand me. This young man is dying, and I'm asking if I can get, no, you can't. I said, well, they'll be there, and I hung up. So now I didn't want to embarrass LSU or Louisiana or Baton Rouge by doing something illegal, but I had to get him there. So at, I called myself and found out a red-eye flight they had, the cheapest one they had, in a cheap motel near the airport. And at that time, this was 1981, at that time, it was only $300 for the plane and, and the uh, hotel. So I took money 
he put them in an envelopes. I told them after practice, come and see me. They didn't know it. And I had, I had them separated about 30 minutes each. Pulled the blinds in my office like I was a thief or a <laughs> mafioso or something. I gave them each an envelope and told them, now this is illegal what I'm doing. You gotta call this number and get your airplane reservation. Then you have to go to this hotel and get a reservation. And here's $300. Don't you tell your teammates you got it. I don't want to get you guys in trouble. Had the blinds pulled in my office. So when we got there, it was my turn to speak, and the three young men were there. So I got up to speak, and before I gave my speech, I said, Mark Elkhorn's three best friends are here. I said, J. Brian Bajran, would you stand up? Joe Costello, would you stand up? Andy Campbell, would you stand up? And everybody applauded, and I said, I brought them here illegally because the NCAA would not let them come here and get paid. Well, yeah. I didn't want to get LSU in trouble. I didn't want to lose my job, but I thought, I'm not going to give you up there. And Well, they didn't do anything, but the story's not over, and then I'll shut up. I know this is your show, not the No, Dale no, no, Coach. Today it's the Dale Brown Show. <laughs> uh, we recruited a kid from Argentina by the name of Hernan Montenegro, uh -huh. 6'10" destined to be an NBA player. Uh, my wife went with me, my daughter went with me on our expense. LSU didn't pay for them, they paid for my airplanes there, but they went with me to Argentina, by a Blanca, Argentina. We visited with him. He had a two-year-old daughter and a wife, they came. We were four games into the season, and I get a call from the doctor. A nurse, and she's the doctor wants to talk. He says, Coach, i got a major problem. He says, Mrs. Montenegro is here, and she's pregnant, and the baby's breached, and I've got to get that baby out right now, or he could, the baby could die, or she could die with complications, but they don't have any insurance. I said, well, what's it cost, Doc? And the price, this is 1981, was like $7,500. I said, just do it, and I'll, I'll, get, I'll pay for it. Just get it, do it. So then I called the NCA. I told them the circumstances. There's a possibility of death. There's a possibility of you know, the, the mother dying. Can, can, can we pay, their, pay this or make a loan to them? I could go to the bank and he, I, I had a banking friend that would give him the loan. No, you can't do that, that's illegal. Well now, I'm stuck. I don't want to do something that they could catch me on and get LSU in trouble. So what I had to do, I have a friend that's a graduate from Yale University that, that is an agent for entertainers like Wynton Marcellus and those groups. Mm -hmm. Never never had anything to do with athletics. And I called him and I said, I need your help. I said, would you come down and sign him to a, a contract and I'll have to declare him ineligible and give them $10,000. He flew down here immediately, gave the $10,000, it was 7,500, but some money to live on. We had to declare him ineligible after four years, and by the way, he did get drafted in the NBA and was one of the great players in Argentina history because stupid NCAA, as I mentioned to you earlier, would not have the courtesy of trying to save a life of a child or a mother, and we had to declare him ineligible. Is it any better now, you think, Coach? Bart, um, it's, as I told you, the, 40, the 43 suggestions I sent in were considered, I'm sure, maverick. 35 of the, thing, 35 of the 43 
the rules have changed. Yes, they've come a million miles, but they've got light years to go. They're going the wrong direction now. Uh, the NCA to allow them, you and I are point, you, you and I are guards on a team together. Uh-huh. And I'm a, you're a fraction better than me. You get $5 million from BMW to do a commercial, I get nothing. So the best potential of me is we, there's no I in the word team. Don't tell me that's not going to separate. Now, sure. should they have the right to do it? Yes. But then the money should be pooled. If three athletes get $5,000 each, that money should be pooled and split with the whole team. I think that makes a lot of sense. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, Look, you know, this has not been a common denominator with the NCAA. It it seems like they've they've tried, Coach, they've almost been scared to to touch this whole topic, and I think they just kind of said, you know, when the lawsuits came out in California, I think they almost just said, you know what? Yeah. We're, we're just going to give in and, and, and didn't put any thought to how they were going to implement doing that part of it. Here's how they should have given in, Jim. They should have said, these youngsters come to us and do not have anything. We've got to be able to give them. For example, these parents, they don't have money to fight to a Final Four. That's right. The NCAA should pay the parents way to a Final Four. We mm-hmm. were to Final Four in Dallas. And uh, one of the parents said, they were, we were staying in this flashy hotel. We were in five-star hotel. We were having steak and lobster, you know, before the tournament. And, all. and I see them peeking around the corner. And they're, they're just old farmer kind of people. And they were kind of, well, we're just looking for our son. Said, Come on in and sit down. I, I, the NCAA did not furnish them with any tickets. The players get like two tickets, but you know, that's about all, that's all they used to get it from, for their family, yeah. but they don't pay their way. It, it was selfish, agreed, that's what it was. It's a billion dollar organization. Everybody's making money off the players, but the players never got anything, and now they distorted, and the NCA doesn't cost the NCA anything. The businesses are paying, so now, you're a good player, and I go tell you, listen, you come, I got a car dealership, you do a commercial for me, I'm giving you $5 million. You're going to come to that school. Now, if they want to give them $5 million, then split it with the rest of the team. Yep. Maybe they'll change I'm not that. even charging you for this speech today, What? by the way, Bill Jim. <laughs> well, let's just make it clear. The Attitude Podcast did not pay for Dale Brown to come on the show today. Coach, I want to, yeah. I, I do want to talk about some of the memories. And um, for me, and I think I told you this, but my first game that I, first basketball game that I ever, college basketball game I ever saw in person was LSU UCLA in the Dome. Um, that was a pretty special year for you. Um, what do you remember about that game and, and that year? I think there isn't one singular memory. I remember. Probably the most memorable things were, number one, 1972, a team picked to win two games, finishes in the upper division of the conference, beats Memphis State, um, wins 14 games. Um, The 1979 championship, SEC championship, first one in 25 years. The 1981 team, most wins in the country, 31 most consecutive wins, uh, 26. Uh, 17 and one in the SEC, uh, 
And that, that made us legitimate. Then in 1986 again, we go to the, and then 1987, we're six seconds away of going from another Final Four. But even my last team, which we had injuries, suspensions, ineligibilities, um, uh, early outs by some, was not a, a successful season on the one-loss column. Those guys were an absolute delight. It was the last game I ever coached. I remember going in the dressing room and telling them that if you leave here thinking you're losers, yes, you lost games, but you guys gave all you have. One of those guys that I was talking to was a senior on the team, Dwayne Spencer mm-hmm. from New Orleans. That's right. Yeah. The day, the day of the naming of the court, Dwayne Spencer called and said him and his wife were in town. They had to come by the house. They came by the house. Now, why do you coach? He came by. I saw she was holding something. Well, he's an artist. He had done a beautiful, beautiful, I'm not saying I'm beautiful. The portrait <laughs> was beautiful of me to give to me to thank, thank me for recruiting him. And so... Those are the things you remember. Just uh, walk-ons. Uh, I, I think of, I think of David Bosley, a kid from West Virginia who was a walk-on, wound up starting the last game of the year, last against Arkansas, and being the MVP. And then to see all those young men out on the court now, older men, the other day, and realizing that I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed my 25 years at LSU. Coach, my favorite season was uh, the 1986 team, 85-86 um, team. Lowest, lowest seed ever to go to an NCAA tournament. And you you want to talk about changing rules. You helped change a rule. Um, LSU was an 11 seed, got to play uh, some home games uh, in the NCAA tournament. People yeah, don't – First two games. They, people don't realize that that actually happened back then. But – because that was really because of your upset victories, uh, they changed the rules. But, coach, what do you remember about that run to the Final Four in 1986? I think um, the thing that I always used to teach. I bet I repeated that to them over and over. I remember when the season started. I said what I told you guys, and they all kind of you know were shy to answer. I said, "Come on, well, well, you know, you tell us so many things." I said, "Well, no, what did I tell you about?" impossible I said I told you the impossible is what nobody can do until somebody does it and that somebody is going to be you guys and how they did it Memphis State Purdue I mean go through beating Georgia Tech at Georgia Tech uh, beating Kentucky after they beat us three times in a row um, that was a well, that that would that wouldn't be as big a miracle as the sun dancing in the sky and the sea party. <laughs> it was it was close it was close to being a miracle because I'm scratching my own head. And then in the final four, we I think had like a nine point lead, but I could tell when we went in at halftime, the air was out of the balloon. They just did. I you could just feel them. I, the second half then Louisville did well, but uh, Don Don Redden. Uh, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, uh, Ricky Blanton going head to head with Purvis Allison, first string All American. Right. Yep. Um, so it was it was a I loved it. I loved it. I loved Baton Rouge. I loved Louisiana. Uh, I loved LSU, and I lo- I loved those kids. 
I was just a 17-year-old kid or 18, I don't remember, but just the, the, the picture in my head of Anthony Wilson just picking that ball up. Do you think there was any divine intervention from that, that season? A plain dealing. <laughs> we were laughing about simplicity. I went up to plain dealing. I love this. It reminds me of our North Dakota people are hardworking. And his dad, they had, you know, just an average little place. And his dad was out mowing the yard. Had uh, so I was waiting inside with his mother and him. He said, well, he'll be, he'll be in a minute. That's fine. Let, you know, don't, don't rush him. He let him finish his yard. So he came in and walked right by me. Oh, washed his hands, came out and sat down. And uh, I, I told Anthony the other day, I said, your dad wasn't very impressed with me because he well, whatever Anthony wants to do, he can do. And he went back outside and did yard work. <laughs> <laughs> and Anthony decided to come. But Anthony was... Here's a paramount example, too. It's kind of like the quarterback from Georgia. Anthony, his freshman year at LSU, averaged two points. Two points. Wasn't wasn't uh, all that tall, wasn't all that quick, wasn't all some, but he had a heart, and he was fearless. Senior year, he's our leading scorer with 18. And, and another thing, if any children are listening or parents are listening, Here's another example of never giving up. You talk about the quarterback at Georgia, a walk-on. Let me give you another one that's pretty darn interesting. Um, we had, um, I can't remember how many exactly. Lost my turn to thought where I was headed on it. You got me so excited to bring it back to memory. <laughs> that was an exciting tournament. Oh, I, I know what it was. Um, Ricky Blanton, we'd beaten Kentucky, and he was guarding uh, Kenny Walker. And a couple years later, I was doing a fundraiser up in Kentucky, and Kenny Walker and uh, several, several Kentucky players were there. And Kenny said to me, what's Ricky Blanton doing now? So I told him, and he said, Coach, he said, Eddie Sutton, I've never been chewed out more than my whole life. He said in that game, we would beaten you three times. But he said he called time on. He didn't even talk to the team. He talked to me. And he says, he said, Sky. They call him Sky yeah, Skywalker. That's right. Yeah. He, he said, Ricky Blanton, he's not fast. He can't jump. And every time I turn around, he's getting a rebound or getting a layup. How is that? And he said, Coach, I'll be honest with you. I couldn't figure it out. He said, he, he wasn't fast. He wasn't a good jumper. I was much bigger than him, but I could never figure him out. He was always where I, he was, he was, was never where I thought he'd be, he said. What's he doing now? So. What is Ricky Blanton doing Blanton. now? Ricky Blanton owns his own insurance company. Does he really? And where, where, and has, where, where is he living? Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. And his mother and father moved here a few years back. His mother just passed and his dad's still living near Ricky. I got to ask you about something that, when I think of the 86 team, I think of something in particular, and I got to ask you about it, how it got started. The freak defense. Um, um, I got to ask you about the freak defense. I was coaching in a little Catholic high school in Minot, North Dakota, called Bishop Ryan. Had small enrollment. The principal, I think, lied the enrollment to get into the top division. We went to this town, Williston, 
and our little center was like six foot, and their their center was six nine, six ten, whatever he was, six nine. Devoured us. So we had to play him the next year. So I thought, we can't guard him the normal way. So at that time, there were not Xerox machines. There were ditto machines. I run off hundreds and hundreds of basketball That's right. And went home and thought, I've got to divine it, find a defense. Well, I happened to go to Barnes & Noble that particular day, and I found a book. And it was by Sun Tu, The Art of War. He was a Chinese general 3,000 years ago in China. And he wrote in there, whenever you face a, a superior opponent, you must use deception because then he, he won't be, if he, if, he, if he has to prepare many ways, he won't be prepared anyway. And I thought, this is a good idea. And the more I started reading the book about how superior talent can be defeated, I thought, so I took those diagrams and I thought, I've got to, I've got to come up with something that'll neutralize outstanding talent. Well, one of the things I did, I started out coming down and setting up in a, in a zone, and then when the ball was passed into the right-hand side, we'd play man-to-man. When it was passed into the middle of the court, we'd play a 1-3-1 one, one zone. When it was passed into the left-hand side of the court, we'd run a 2-3 trap zone. Uh-huh. So we'd, we'd play man-to-man if it was passed to the right, We'd play 1-3-1 one, one if it went to the middle. We'd use a 2-3 trap if it went to the left. Now, if they'd call timeout and the coach was figuring it out, we'd just switch the clues. <laughs> well, everybody at, first, everybody at first thought, well, that's just some coaches just trying to psych people out. But they couldn't figure it out. Well, we're playing North Carolina in um, the uh, Metrodome in New Jersey. And it's on uh, Super Bowl weekend. We're playing North Carolina. Was that like the 9-8 half at halftime or something like that? You're, you're getting very close. I remember that. Michael game. Jordan. I mean, they had they were loaded. Uh, one of the greatest coaches of all time. No question. Dan Smith. We went out at halftime. And now what we're talking about, they got Perkins, they got Doherty, they got Michael Jordan. Worthy, I right? I don't know if James Worthy was yeah. on that team or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we go out at halftime, LSU 21, North Carolina 9. Okay, I knew it was a 9 in there. 21 to 9. <laughs> and uh, so it is confusing. And then if a coach calls timeout and says, I know what they're doing now, they're playing man-to-man on the right-hand side. And, and Because I always put my best defense on the right-hand side because most guards are right-handed, and the ball, they favor the right. So our best defense... If it would be man-to-man, that's what I would use on the right-hand side. So in switching things over, it, it, it was confusing. And sometimes we'd even get confused, but it would confuse them as bad as it did us. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. Did it confuse you? What did, what did the kids think when, you, when you're putting in this stuff? Were they looking at each other like, what in the heck uh, is this? It, it, you, just, you, you don't do it with a team that uh, doesn't have some pretty good brain cells going or you uh-huh. could never do it. But but I, I do remember we're playing uh, uh, John Cheney was a dear friend of mine at Temple, yeah. a great coach, and I think they were 32-1 and one, or 32-1 and one or something like that, and we're playing them in Chicago. And the day before the game this guy from Chicago 
Tribune asked him, he said, what do you think of Dale Brown's freak defense? And he said, the only freaks I've ever seen are in the alley in, in Philadelphia. Well, then I knew he didn't know what it was. And then other coaches would say, oh, that's just Dale being a psychologist. There's no such thing as a freak defense. <laughs> but there was. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, I mean, I have to ask you about Shaquille O'Neal. And uh, I know that you guys still have a close relationship. What was it like re- recruiting him? And uh, how tough was it to sell to get him to come to LSU? And just what kind of kid was he? I was asked to go to, it was during the, the height of communism. And the State Department called me and asked me if I would go to Europe and go to Germany and start in southern Germany and then go all the way up to northern Germany and speak to the military because we were, ha- we were having a thing called reforger, sending over 80,000 troops to mass them on the east German border to intimidate the communists. We're staying here, so don't you try to invade. So I'm at my last spot in a place called Wildeflecken, up in the mountains near Fulda, Germany. I'm packing my bag and I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around. Here's this young man, about 6'9", maybe 225, 200 or something, 225, 250 maybe. And he stuttered. Coach Brown, I'll be trying out for the base team. I'll be trying out for the team here. He didn't say base team. Right. I'll be trying out for the team here. And he said, um, I can't dunk a ball, and I run up and down the court like three or four times in my lower extremities tire. Can you show me some exercises? And I said, sure, soldier. I said, um, how long have you been in service, soldier? <laughs> he said, Look, sorry, I'm not in service. He says, and he cups his hand over his mouth. Coach Brown, I'm only 13 years old. I said, what? <laughs> I said, what's your name? And I, as I said that, I looked down to his shoes and I said, what size shoe do you wear? At that time, well, I think it was an 18, so we wore a 23 here. <laughs> and he says, I'm only 30. I said, what do you do? He said, my, my, my father's a career military man. I said, what is your father here? He's in the sauna. I said, I'd like to talk to him. <laughs> so we head to the sauna and I'm just putting my hand on the door to open it and it bursts open. Here comes a guy with a towel, sweating profusely around him. And he said, that's my dad. And I said, Sergeant, my name's Dale Brown. I handed him my card. I said, I'm the basketball coach at LSU. And he took the card. And almost with disdain, he's just, he's not very impressed. He's not rude, but he's looking, he's looking over that card. And then he, he's, you know, excuse me, Coach Brown, for interrupting. He says, basketball's all fine and good. But he says, I'm interested in my son getting, getting some intellectualism. intellectualism. He said, because it's time that, he said, for example, he said, I'm a sergeant. If I was educated, maybe I could be a general. He said, maybe if you're interested in my son's intellect and if he ever does develop, we might be interested if you're interested in my son's intellect. Well, man, that hit me right on the button. So I wrote to him every day and uh, not every day, maybe, right. maybe once a week. He says every day, but it wasn't every day. Um, and weeks later, I'm just going over to the assembly center. My secretary runs, I think you want this letter. And it was from Shaquille, KPO, and still in, still in Germany. He said, uh, 
Coach Brown, I did everything you told me to do. And my high school coach cut me off the team. He told me I'm too slow. Really? I'm too clumsy. I have too big a feet that I could never be a basketball player. He suggests I be a goalie in soccer. What should I do, Coach Brown? Well, man, I folded the letter up, put it in my back pocket. All through practice, I had that on my mind. So when I came back, my secretary had already left. So I sat down behind that desk and I thought, now what kind of a profound statement am I going to make to a 13-year-old child that's had his heart broken? I'm just going to tell him about my life. So I put, dear Shaquille, I'm so sorry what happened to you, but I know exactly how you feel. I said, I heard people saying Dale Brown could never make it. His mother's on welfare. He doesn't have a dad and whatever. But if you do this, I promise you, you'll make it. And it's pretty simple. If you always try to do your very best, and only you will know that, if you never give up under any conditions, sooner or later, God will take care of everything else. Do not quit. Well, then I would write him on a regular basis. Little did I know until just maybe, maybe the past year or two years, he told me the story. He said his mother sent him to get the mail and they were up in the mountain hills. He said, he's walking outside in winter to get the mail. He said, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give up basketball and go in the army like my dad. He said, I got to the mailbox outside and the way home I saw a letter from you and I opened it up. And he said, that changed my mind that I was going to not quit. And he, he said, so years later, when he's in the NBA, he gives me, gives me a picture. And it's a picture of him with his hands on his knees looking up at me and my arms in the air doing something. And he wrote on the picture, Dear Coach Brown, because you taught me how to listen, they now say I might be the best center in the history of the NBA. Because I was always telling people, there's a difference when you're being coached. Listening, hearing, hearing is just a sound. It goes in one ear and out the other. Most kids just hear their parents, hear their coach, hear their teacher, but they don't do anything with it. Listening is you absorbing it and putting it up in your subconscious. And there's light years of difference in hearing and listening. And light travels 186,000 miles a second. He was a model student. I only had to discipline him once. He missed class. So I got him up at five o'clock in the morning and ran and ran and ran. He was almost, he was sick. I was going to take him to breakfast afterwards. He's, Coach, I, I can't do it anymore. Are you quitting? <laughs> no. Well, then finish. Um, everything was yes, sir, no, sir. He has his doctorate degree. One year he had the highest grade point average on the team. He has a mother that was the cement of the organization and a disciplined uh, father. Uh, never had, outside that one incident of missing class, one of the most benevolent people you'll ever meet in your yes. life. When you look at him, he looks like the exterminator. Yeah. But Jim, he's really Bambi on the inside. I've never heard, Coach, I've been in this business for a long time, I've never heard one bad word about Shaquille O'Neal. No, you can't. Charitable, you can't believe how. Um, I, I used to do a lot of motivational speaking. Now with COVID, I haven't done these speeches in two years because I'm not gonna get on an airplane or anything, but, um, let me give you an example of what happened. 
I got a telephone call one day from a woman in Indianapolis. And my secretary said, she wants to talk to you, it's important. So I'm Indianapolis, okay, so I go on the phone. She tells me that she's originally from Louisiana and they live in Indianapolis. And they see tonight that the Lakers are playing Indiana Pacers. And this was in the NBA playoffs. This just isn't a game. This is gonna be eventually for the national championship of the NBA. And she said, my son has got a cancerous tumor in his brain and they operate and he's kind of in and out of a coma and he may not live. And she said, I know this is asking the impossible, but is there any way you could get Shaquille to call me on my cell that I could hold it to his ear? Because if he dies, he can at least die. He's in and out of a coma happy his hero was Shaquille and I told, I told her ma'am it's almost impossible they've got game day they're going to have film shoot around sleeping I'll call so I called him on his cell and when he's going to do something he'll say gotcha coach and he said gotcha coach two years later I'm sitting in TJ Ribs restaurant that's owned by my friend Tom Moran mm-hmm. who's now passed and John Wooden who's down visiting and uh, we're sitting there talking, and this woman comes over. Excuse me, Coach Brown. She said, uh, I'm sure you don't remember me. She said, I called you uh, two years ago. She said, regarding my son, I don't know exactly who you are. I said, you're from, you're from Indianapolis, but you're originally from Beth. That's right, she said. And I said, uh, well, and I said, you wanted me to have Shaquille call him. Did he call your son? She said, no, he didn't, coach. He didn't. She said, no, coach. He came to the hospital the day of the game. Wow. He sat there for one hour telling my son jokes, singing to him, stroking wow. his little face. And she said, my son woke up and she said, talk to Shaquille. Wow. So that didn't make news. He didn't call anybody to tell him. He doesn't take a posse with him when he goes somewhere. There's a... Obviously, this is embellished, but there's hundreds, not millions, I was going to say, hundreds of stories that I could tell you what he does. Kind man. Well, I mean, what, what he did for, you know, it, it was, it's amazing to see. The, I mean, I guess it was incredible for you to see the, the transformation of him from <clears throat> this boy, goofy boy. You talk about not being able to play high school basketball, but just to see the transformation of him to what he became in he certainly, I mean, I think he's the best NBA center that, that ever played the game. I mean, you can make arguments about others, but mm-hmm. but the transformation that you saw in him is just, it was amazing. We're, he's at the house one time. We're doing a, <clears throat> we're doing a special for um, Hannah Storm mm-hmm. uh, that they had on TV, and uh, Shaq and Dale, it was called. And we're sitting there talking, and he says, Coach, he said, do you know one of the main reasons I came to LSU? I said, no. He said, do you remember when I asked you, will I start? I remember like it was two seconds ago. He said, you told me, I can't tell you that, Shaquille. He said, because that has to be decided on the court. And he said, however, you know, you're certainly with your talent and whatever in developing, you're certainly gonna be, have a great chance. He said, everybody else 
that I visited, they all told me that I'd be a star and I would start. And you told me I, you told me that you couldn't tell me that. He said, that shocked me. So he said, that's one of the main reasons I came, because you were honest <laughs> to me. Oh, Lordy. Coach, I got... He struggled early. He fouled out. Um, he didn't have a hook shot. He, he didn't have a... He could dunk the ball. He could run the court. The greatness was obviously there, and I wouldn't be naive enough to think that I brought that greatness out. It was there, but I thought, well, maybe he's not developing properly because I didn't play center. I played in a wing, and maybe I wouldn't, he couldn't shoot a hook. So I brought in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to work with him with a hook, and I brought in Bill Walton for four days to work on his passing and his footwork. And I think that really helped him, too. Wow. Oh, by the way. The NCAA declared that illegal after we did it. Really? Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that. I'm trying to make somebody better. I can't do it. That, that's that's insane. The rules were definitely a lot different back then, and I I, I know that they're better now. But you're right; there's still a long way to go. Coach, yeah, I, I I compliment him for for finally changing. Coach Dale Brown here. I have to ask you. Um, obviously, last week uh, you were honored by having the court named after you at the PMAC. Um, what what was that like, Coach? I, I mean, I, I don't even know how to, how to ask. I mean, to, to have a court named after you, uh, for most people it happens, you know, long after they've departed us. Uh, but to be honored as a living coach and obviously a big part of LSU history, just, just talk about what that night was like. Three, three things. <laughs> Humbling grateful and tearful when I came out and saw all those guys on the court. Now, now, now men, now, now doing their own thing. Um, hadn't seen some of them in some time from out of state or out of country. Um, it was, um, it was never a goal of mine when I came here. I'm, I'm not being modest and I'm not being humble by saying this, but I never once ever thought that I want to be the coach of the year in the nation. I want to be in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. I want to have a court named after me. I want to have a statue. My two goals when I came here was, number one, make sure I did my best to get the best and make good men that I was working with, make, make, help, help them in their journey in life. And number two, to turn LSU into a basketball power. Never was there ever once that I have an individual goal. All of my goals were centered, or, centered around the players. And I remember how an impact a coach can make. The ex-coach of the high school where I was, I went to a Catholic school and uh, there was a mean old nun and when we're going out of the room, I say something. She wore a hearing aid and they wore those habits. I didn't think she could hear me, but I tell this guy something about her, which was, you know, she's, She's a, she's, she's an SOB, that's what I said. <laughs> she was a mean person. And uh, I shouldn't say mean, but she, she was... Sisters were a little different pretty, back then. She was pretty mean, but hit you with a ruler and all that stuff. So we get to the next class, and now the ex-coach is now the principal of the school. So I hear him as Dale Brown here, so I go outside and stand up against the locker he kind of grabs me by the shirt and doesn't bang my head off the locker, but kind of pushing me up against the locker daily. He said, I can't believe what you just do in the classroom. So I tried to get around it. So I, what did I do? What would you, what'd you, what'd you call sister? 
So I tried to say I swore. He said, that was, you said you swore? So I finally said it, and he kind of turned my shirt and didn't bang me, but pushed me against the locker. And with his other hand, he squeezed the back of my neck, Jim. And he said, Dale Brown, you can make something of yourself, and I love you. And he turned around and walked down the hall. Now that was in 1953. And I today telling you on the phone, that's the first time a man ever told me he loved me. And there's not a player that I've had that I did not tell him I loved him because some, some kids come in and have not been told. Some of them didn't have fathers. Right. And that what sports did for me, it also taught me not to give up. I sat on the bench for three years and seldom ever played. Lucky if I got in two minutes. But I had, I, had, I had the quest that I would not give up. It's very easy to give up. And it's not your IQ that counts in life, it's your FQ, your failure quotient. How can you take it? So I'm, I just did not give up. The next year, and this is not being braggadocious, because there's 10 people that live in North Dakota. <laughs> there's not very many people. I became the leading scorer in the history of North Dakota high school basketball. Now how? just because I didn't give up. And it would have been very easy to have done when you never play and you sit on the bench watching it, you go to practice every day. And that's why I bring up uh, Anthony Wilson, the fact that um, he sat on that bench. Uh, uh, Garrett Homme, Garrett Homme from Holland. Yep. Was, t- was his towel a shack? Pardon me? Was his towel a shack? Right? Yes. Now, three years he sat on the bench, played sparingly, but didn't give up. It would have been so easy for him to have gone some other place. This this business they got now you can leave anytime. Coaches and players, you don't even know who the teams are anymore. They weren't running around like gypsies almost. That's right. Um, he became he he, he became a first-round draft choice. He's the only athlete in the history of LSU. Remember, this guy sat on the bench for three years. In his last year at LSU, he's the only guy in the history of LSU ever that led the team in score in the same year in scoring, rebounding, field goal shooting, and free throw shooting. Garrett Homme. I did not know that. Didn't give up. So it is It is easy to throw it in and like I say, um, is the, is, have, are those the moments? Is that what you were thinking about when you? I mean, and I, and I watched all these people come up to you and tell you hello. And um, I'm friends with with Joey Tolis, and I and I saw that. Oh, are you really? Yeah, and, and I, it was great. I know you got to talk to his, uh, Art's. You know, Art has yeah. departed. Art Tolis, the the great basketball coach that. And I know you got to talk to his wife and and, and different things like that. But just to see all these people come up to you, it just, it, it had to be special. Well, you mentioned Art Tolis. It's funny no one's ever done a story on him. Art Tolis was the catalyst for us developing into a power. He, he brought to LSU, now listen to this, he found Greg Cook in New Jersey. Really? Okay. He found Kenny Higgs in Kentucky. He found Rudy Macklin in Kentucky. Now, both of them were 
two of the greatest players that ever played in the state of Kentucky. Kentucky was dying to get their knock their doors down. Right. But sometimes, just being yourself, he went to see Rudy play against the great Louisville player of all, one of the great players of all time. And um, they're walking down the steps from the gym, and this gentleman next to him says, what did you think of the game tonight? What, what I'm, I'm losing my thought matter. You got such good memory. What was the, what was the great star from Louisville, All-American? Daryl Griffin. Daryl Griffith. Daryl Griffith. Okay, I, I, I was trying and, to think of uh, one. Anyway. He said, what did you think of the game? He said, he said it was a good game. He said, oh, how'd you... What would you think between Rudy Macklin and Daryl Griffith? He said, I'll be honest with you. He said, I liked Rudy Macklin better. He said, did you? He said, yeah. And he says, I'm Rudy Macklin's father. <laughs> Art Tolis didn't know that. And Art Tolis was, was a... I'm surprised that somebody hasn't done a story on how did LSU get off the ground. Um, Maybe we should. He, yeah, he was the major catalyst because, I mean... You're talking about Kenny Higgs, runner-up with Jack Givens, high school player of the year. Rudy Macklin, runner-up with Terrell Griffin, high school player of the year. Greg Cook, who's as tough as nails, one of the toughest defensive centers I've ever seen in my life. Ask Sam Bowie about him, if you don't yeah. believe me. Um, so Art told us is kind of a, um, not spoken about much. And that's why I wanted to make sure that Julie came and represented her husband. I'm, I'm glad she brought Joey, too. Coach, um, I, I know you still go to some games here and there. I know you don't go all the time, but um, why is it important for you to, to, to still go and, and show your face at, at game? I mean, I know you love basketball, but it, it's, it seems like it's more than that. I, I see you at a lot of games. Well, I don't go to the non-conference games, to be honest with you, because they're this is terrible – competition yeah. they aren't fun to watch that's true and uh now with all these covid restrictions you know and i sit right near the floor but if you don't get there well the, well the, before the team is come comes out and sits on the bench you have to go way up and around and come down steps um and i i have a i have a grandson that's a coach was at baylor for a year now at grand canyon university i have another grandson they just graduated from LSU. That's uh, I was a preferred walk on an LSU football two years ago, and the grandson that's an attorney in New Orleans was fun to go with them or friends, and uh, and then I know so many people. Right. What do you think of this LSU team? That obviously. Um, one of the better teams that Will Wade's had, and he's had some good ones. I mean, people don't talk about how LSU has won the most, has the most SEC wins over the past three years combined. Um, and this team now, 14-1 and one after beating Tennessee in an exciting game Saturday night. What do you think about this Tigers team? I think it's uh, probably the most talented team I've seen uh, during his career here. Uh, they play hard. Uh, they play together. Uh, he's done an excellent job of coaching them. They're one of the better defensive teams, I, I believe, in yeah. the country. Yeah. Now, I haven't obviously seen all the teams, but uh, they're good. <coughs> they're capable of beating anybody. What, before I let you go, we got to know, what do, what do you do these days? Um, and it is tough for all of us, obviously, having to 
to not be able to do do the things that we did every day before for the last two years, being stuck at home some days, a lot of days. But what do you do with yourself every day? I um, the days go so quickly. I, I'm a I'm an avid reader. I love to read. I do uh, I do a lot of radio. I don't do Zoom, but I do a lot of stuff on the phone. I'm on the computer. I was working out faithfully, and I've dragged my feet on that. I, I, I don't have, I'm really blessed. I don't have one pain. I don't have a sore it's knee, ankle, back, anything. But your strength, you know, I'm gonna be 87 this October, and you, 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 you have to conserve energy, and I'm not, I'm not as devoted as I was in working out. And I've gotta quit saying, I'm gonna start it again tomorrow and do it, do it over. Now, since I'm talking to you, Maybe I should start tomorrow working out again. Well, I hope you <laughs> but, do, uh, Coach. And then I, I stay off. I stay, I stay real busy. I communicate with uh, my players on a regular basis. Um, and the days, the days don't seem boring to me at all. And coaching in 44 years, uh, I, I don't miss coaching at all. Um, I still have contact with my players. I know 10 of 10 of them have passed. So there's 150 players. I mean, I've talked to nearly every one of them. There's probably maybe five or six that I've lost contact with. A couple of them overseas, uh, but I'm I'm going to track them down too. I've got a guy that's an expert at. I don't know if he works with the FBI or CIA Uh or what, but he he can track people down to try to talk to them. Well, Coach, I, I can't tell you how how wonderful it's been. To talk to you for you know for you to give up seventy five minutes to, to talk to me and um, someone well, you don't know. You were know. fun. You were knowledgeable. Well, uh, it was a big part of my you youth, were a coach. Fan. <laughs> you know, um, it, it just it's it's great to hear that at eighty six years old you're still excited about all these different things and and being able to get a, go out and do the things you want to do and. Um, it was great. To, I mean, to me, if if I li- if I'm lucky enough to to be around at 86 years old, I would love to look like Dale Brown. I'll just say that. Jim, you're 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 very very kind, and I I, I have to respond to your kindness and those wonderful thoughts by giving you saying thank you or uh, I I'm, I appreciate it or et cetera. That doesn't seem enough. I steal from my mentor of 40 years, John Wooden. We are in TJ Ribs another time, another time I had him here. And I saw a young man off to the side, and I close with this in a way of thanking you or thanking anybody that's complimentary. Um, instead of just saying thank you or it's humbling, this young man, little blue blazer on, standing looking at us, and just as our ribs come, he comes over. Coach Brown, uh, Coach, Coach Wooden. He said, I don't mean to be rude, but he said, I just want to tell you this, sir. I don't want to take a picture with you. I don't need an autograph. He said, I don't want to shake your hand. He said, I just want to tell you this. He said, you're my hero. You're one of God's angels, sir, and continued blessings. And he starts to walk away spontaneously. Coach Wooden, young man, and he calls him back. What's your name? And this is, this is as close to verbatim as I can get. My name's Jim. Jim, he said, 
you just made an old man feel really good. <laughs> Coach was probably at that time about 90, 95, yeah. in his 90s. And uh, you just made an old man feel good. But he said, I wouldn't want you to, to leave your false impressions of me. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm, I'm still a work in progress. I'm not what I could be. And I'm not what I should be. But I'm sure God I'm not what I used to be. And your, 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 your kind words are going to make me strive to be a better man. Thank you. I thought, how does he do that? And so when people were so complimentary that night and the players, you know, I did all I could do, could just break down ball. And when I saw those players there, um, and I repeat to you what he told that guy, saying thank you or I'm grateful doesn't seem enough. And he was, he's the most Christ-like man I've ever met in my life. Coach. And by the way, by the way, final thing. He lived his life so beautifully. Um, the best way of describing him, <clears throat> one of my favorite poets, if not my favorite poet, is Edgar Guest. And Edgar Guest described John Wooden perfectly. He said the following, I'd rather see a lesson than to hear one any day. I'd rather you walk with me than to merely show the way. The eyes of better teacher and more willing than the ear. And the counsel you are giving, Jim, may be very fine and true, but I'd rather get my examples by observing what you do. And that's how he lived. He did it by example. He never was, um, he was something. There's only one John Wooden. And, and remember what his salary was, $32,500 when he retired UCLA after 27 years. And there's only one Dale Brown, that's for sure. And um, we, you know, it's it's been it's it's hard to believe it's been uh, 24 years or 25 years since since you retired. But um, 25, yep, right on the button. Hard, hard to believe, and and we we still miss you to this day, Coach. Thank you so much. Jim, for taking... you were delightful. You were, you were, it was very very kind of you, and I hope uh, hope I didn't talk too much. Of course, he didn't talk too much. Maybe a little of abrupt ending there, but we went on to to just chat for a minute after that, and I didn't think that what what he had to say was worth adding on to here. Nor, frankly, did I want it to be on here. It was between him and I. I thank Coach Brown again. Um, just a phenomenal conversation and insight to not just to the twenty five years that he was coach at LSU, but insight to his thoughts and. You know, realizing that um, the world of college basketball, how different it is today than it was back then. You didn't have one and duns back then. Um, you just didn't. I don't. I don't know if I don't remember who the first one and done was. Maybe somebody can enlighten me. But it was after 1997. So, uh, you know, he 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 was a bit. I mean, it, he was a big deal to a lot of these kids back then and you could talk to any of his old players and they'll tell you that is the truth well i don't know how much i can add to all that um we talked about the national championship game we didn't even mention the word saints until just now um it has been a strange week um not uh going you know usually i'm all preparing about what are the saints going to do this week and you know when you go 
18 weeks and really longer than that because you count the preseason and you think back to Ida and what are the Saints going to do and we've gone this long and I know a lot of you are probably still in denial. It is, uh, it is always strange when the Saints season is over for us here in southeast Louisiana, but it is over indeed and uh, we'll have to watch the playoffs this year for the first time in five years without the Saints in it. So it's going to be strange, but it's okay. Um, this was a team in transition that did a really, really nice job. Um, we've talked about that. We'll probably talk a little bit about it more on Friday with Conductor Dave and Uncle Big Nick. Um, more so with, um, with uh, Conductor Dave, for sure, as we make our NFL picks for the playoff first playoff weekend. Six picks. Uh, we will pick all six games, and then um, we'll have Uncle Big Nick on uh, and uh, it'll be our last five-star Friday in the sense that we're doing it now. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to do it in the future. Obviously, there's fewer games. This is the last weekend where there are as many as five games. There are six. Six NFL playoff games this weekend, including Monday night, and then after that, it's four, and then two, and then the Super Bowl. So that's where we are with football seasons is coming to an end. But we will talk about all those games, get into it, maybe uh, rehash the national championship one more time. Uh, I think Uncle Big Nick uh, had a big night as well last night. He had a lot, he had a lot more involved than I did. He had all kinds of different bets going on with that game. It was crazy, and he, I think he hit every single one of them. So we'll talk about that on Friday. This is our last uh, three-show week of the, at least of the near future, until we get probably closer to the NFL draft. We're going back to two days a week next week, uh, beginning next week. I think we're going to do Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, I think that's where, how we're going to do it, at least see how that works. Again, I want to thank Dale Brown, um, and uh, we will certainly have him on again if he is so willing, maybe uh, when we get to March Madness and we can relive some of his, the old March Madness days but this LSU team you gotta think they're gonna be involved at 14-1 and one big game tonight uh, on the road against Florida I think a true litmus test of how good Will Wade's team is I mean we've seen them win at home now twice in a row we talked about can they steal one on the road against a really good team we know they can beat some bad teams on the road will they be able to beat a team like Florida on the road we'll find out tonight that will do it for episode number 45. We will see you on Friday. Everybody stay warm. Enjoy yourselves. And remember to hug the ones you love. Wave to the ones you don't. Peace and love, my friends. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Never said you had to walk and be a second chance. I never said I was a victim. So